You're listening to Certified, Canada's Class Actions Podcast. I'm your host, Suzanne Kyoto. Each week I'll be discussing all aspects of class actions with the leading experts in this area. The results are just like a class action. Thought-provoking, lively, and always slightly unpredictable. Happy listening. Hi everyone, welcome to Certified, Canada's Class Actions Podcast, and we're here today to talk about uh, funding. So we're here with Ramissa Herji, who is Associate Counsel to the Class Proceedings Committee and is an experienced class actions lawyer. And Emily Maxwell is an investment manager at Augusta Ventures, a third-party litigation funder with offices in Toronto and around the world. And she too is, uh, was in private practice before she joined uh, Augusta Ventures. So thank you both for joining us. Uh, so first of all, um, I'll start with you, Ramissa. T- tell us a bit about yourself uh, and your background and how you came to work in the litigation funding space. Sure. So. Um, Throughout undergrad and law school, I was always really interested in the social justice aspect and how I could further the cause. And I knew after law school with my legal career, I wanted to do something with a public interest bent to it. And I was very lucky in that I got a great articling position with a plaintiff side class action firm that actually walked the walk when it came to promoting access to justice through class actions. And I was shocked at how I really ended up loving both the variety and types of actions and the intellectual rigor that was associated with class actions. So it was a really great first job, and um, I really loved litigating class actions. And then moving to litigation funding was pure luck and timing for me. Last summer, I saw a job posting for what sounded like a dream job. My favorite part of litigating was always the research and writing and the role of counsel and associate counsel to the class proceedings committee has plenty of that. Plus, you really get a sense of what the class action landscape is across the province and you really have an ability to promote access to justice by supporting counsel and bringing their class actions. And as an added bonus, the hours are very reasonable which is not always something that you find in private practice. So I took the jump, and here I am a year later, and couldn't have worked out better. Great. So, uh, Emily, I'll just put the question to you. How did you end up where you are today? Yeah, so um, I think it's sort of a common theme that I've heard on the podcast with a lot of the the, uh, speakers is really a a lot of luck and being in the right place at the right time, I Mm -hmm. suppose. So. Um, when I was, uh, before going to law school, it was the summer before heading to law school, I actually, I lived close to Siskins, so it was proximate, and I, I just wrote them a letter saying, oh, I'm heading to law school, I, uh, I just finished, I had done a master's in library and information science, so, and it worked for professors a, a lot, so I wrote in saying, oh, I really, I enjoy research, I was wondering if there's anything that I could do to help with the firm, um, and then a little bit of a, oh, I need some money, I'm going to law school. <laughs> and um, I doubt he'll really remember this, but it was picked up by Dimitri. Oh, Dimitri. Yeah, Dimitri Lascaris, yeah. who uh, at that point in time, he was really um, pioneering the securities class actions group at Siskins, and turned out that he needed some help with um, an options backdating research project that he was working on. Uh, and it gave rise to a bunch of cases in that area. So I went on, uh, worked with him for the summer, and then I basically just kept going back and and never left. So uh, I, I just fell into something really great. And like what Ramissa said, it was a firm that really walked the walk, and uh, it was very exciting um, and fast-paced, and it felt like there was lots of opportunity to research new aspects of law and really help shape the shape the law of class actions in Ontario. So it was really just right place, right time, and it worked out well. Fantastic. Uh, so, Ramissa, you just talked about the access to justice elements of, of what you do. Uh, how, how does litigation funding enable access to justice? Tell us a bit more about that. Sure. Well, I, I think that there's actually a couple aspects to it, and I know sometimes you know, the catchphrase access to justice gets an eye roll from a lot of people. But I do really think that it's important in class actions because in my experience as 
a plaintiff-side class action lawyer with a lot of interaction with class members, I know that they are really interested and motivated to have their day in court um, in whatever way that may appear. So, you know, I think it gets a bit of a bad rap, but I do think that having a mechanism is really important. And, um, you know, litigation funding, I think, plays a really interesting role in this um, in a few respects. First, it helps promote litigation that should be brought. And I think that there are certain cases that wouldn't be brought otherwise, cases that are smaller, so may not necessarily be profitable to a law firm to bring the cases or risk your litigation where it's a novel point of law and no one is really sure what the courts are going to do with it. Specifically in Ontario, cost of words can be quite high, which can have a chilling effect when law firms are indemnifying their representative plaintiffs. So litigation funding can also help level the playing field between plaintiffs and defendants who are generally quite well resourced. Mm -hmm. And then I think the other aspect to it is it allows class members and representative plaintiffs to have access to counsel of their choice. For example, look at employment class actions. A lot of employment class actions are being brought by lawyers who are not the typical few class action firms, Mm -hmm. right? And I think it's really important to open up the space and provide lawyers who might really have the subject matter expertise, but not the expertise in the procedural mechanism of class actions to give them a chance and an opportunity, because I think class members are really well represented by lawyers that really understand the subject area. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Uh, and then, uh, Emily, what's your take on that? Yeah, so I guess I would just really um, agree with everything that Remissa said. I think the only thing that I would add on is just uh, in terms of access to justice, I feel like class actions are, they're actually really important to keep corporations in check, especially where regulation seems to be somewhat weak or not not enforced to the extent that perhaps um, would be would be good for consumers. Mm-hmm. So in that respect, it seems like um, a strong private market for enforcement, like in the form of class actions, and then where third-party funding can come in to assist with carrying some of the costs. And I think it, it really helps to balance the power out um, between the, the corporations and the consumers that are, um, are potential class members. So I think that helps with access to justice. Uh, and where I think third-party funding really helps is um, when when counselors are taking on a class action, typically they're risking their time, so they're doing it all on contingent fee. So that's a lot of risk right there, mm-hmm. uh, along with the disbursements as well, which can it can grow to a, a half a million to a couple million dollars. Um, and then um, to put on top of that, the risk of an adverse cost award. When a funder can come in and, and offset some of that risk, it increases access to justice. It increases the amount of firms that can do class actions, and and it gives them room to do more class actions as well. So, I think there's that side, that side of access to justice, too. Okay, great. So, uh, Emily, tell us how how someone gets funding from your organization, and how how does that differ from what you know of the class proceedings fund and then we'll, or class proceedings committee and then we'll get Remissa in to, to say her part. For sure. So I think um, where the difference really comes down to is we, we view cases um, with a, a, bit of, a bit of a social justice eye, but really more of a commercial eye. Mm-hmm. Um, our clients are essentially investors, so we have, really have to, we have to watch what they're putting their money into. Um, but we... We look at all kinds of class actions. They, they don't have to be huge. Um, we're open to experimenting and innovating. It's a new space, so there's lots of room for that. Um, so when we look at a case, we really have two phases that it'll go through. So the first phase is the origination, in, origination phase, and that's when uh, we'll get uh, contact come in and we'll look at uh, preliminary legal merits of the case, 
um, and economics of the case. So typically the funding needs, uh, how long the case is expected to take before it resolves and recovery estimates. And we'll, we'll use all that information to create uh, like a, a pitch on the economics and the legal merits of the case mm -hmm. for our new business committee and come up with a term sheet. If it passes that committee, then we'll price the case and send it out um, and it, obtain an ex exclusivity period when we'll go into the deeper diligence of the case. Um, so if a case passes that, the origination stage, then we go into diligence and we do a deeper dive on the legal and economic merits of the case. So we're pretty lean at Augusta in Canada. We'll typically retain outside counsel to have a second look on the law side. Mm -hmm. And um, if, if there are damage reports that the plaintiff has, we'll take a look at those. Otherwise, we, we actually recently hired an in-house economist who can help us look at damages as well, which is really helpful because um, for a long time, this is probably the case that a lot of third-party funders, um, we're really strong uh, as a firm of mostly lawyers at looking at, at assessing the legal merits of cases, but um, now we're sort of moving more to becoming a finance firm. Mm. So we look a lot, a lot more at the, at the economic merits of cases now. Um, and then we will, will take the, the damages reports, the legal reports, um, and draft up an investment and risk paper, which is really sort of like a prospectus of the case. Mm and take it to our investment committee and then, um, and then do a pitch. It's, it's sort of like preparing for a hearing, uh, okay. really. So that, that's how it works. Um, and recoverability, I should mention that too. That's a huge, a huge consideration. Mm -hmm, of course. Yeah. And, you're, and you're on the origination side of things, am I right in saying that? Yeah, that's true. Okay. I'm on the origination side, but um, because we are, are small here in Canada, I sort of do all the way up, so originations, diligence, and then we also have a monitoring side, but that's something else entirely. Okay. We'll touch on that later. Great. So, Remissa, tell us how uh, the class proceedings committee differs from that process. I imagine it differs quite a lot. Sure. So, one of the advantages, I guess, to being essentially set up through statute and regulations is that our process is very transparent. Um, and so we have a very standardized process. Our initial funding application requires several things, including counsel fairly analyzing the merits of the case and the likelihood of certification, detailed budgets and information on any experts that may be retained. For an initial application, counsel appears in person, well, now or resume, to make their pitch directly to the committee members and field questions from the committee members. And we look at all the applications in detail and do our own internal assessment. But we also really rely on counsel to clearly set out their case and to fairly consider any potential defenses. And then the committee makes their decision. And once a case has been funded, Council is free to apply for supplementary funding amounts once the initial amount that has been granted has been depleted. And there are also requirements for that. And so I think one of the benefits of applying for funding is, yes, it's a, it can be an onerous process because there are quite a few things that are required, but it's also very clear and transparent what you need to do. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so I, I think that, I think that, as, and as someone who was on both sides, who's been on both sides of it as a formal, former counsel that was applying for funding, I think it's quite clear what you need to do in order to have an application before the committee. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned before that your uh, the, the class proceedings committee tends to take on more actions that may not be that commercially viable, but have a social social justice component. So can you give us some examples of that? Sure. And I mean, I don't think it's necessarily fair to say that they may not be commercially viable. I think due to the statute and the regulations, the committee has an obligation to consider public interest as part of its mandate. Mm -hmm. But there tends to be there always is a consideration of the merits of an action. 
but the committee will also fund those cases that may be a toss-up if the public interest aspect is so great. Um, so I will give you an example. So the committee a few years ago funded the Dust versus Loblaws case relating to yes. the collapse of the Rana Plaza garment factory. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, that case ended up being unsuccessful, although it, I think, really triggered an important public interest aspect, the question of what's a Canadian corporation mm -hmm. accountable for when it, you know, when it's agents or subsidiaries have allegedly behavior in other countries that results in harm. And so I think that that's a really important question. And even though it was ultimately unsuccessful, I think that it was important that it was, that that litigation was funded and also that that litigation was brought and able to have some sort of determination, even if it was ultimately unsuccessful. And, you know, I'm not, when I say that, that's my own views on it. I was not committee when that case was funded and I'm not speaking for the committee members when looking at that case, but I think that that's an example of a case where, you know, the public interest mandate is triggered, but there are also examples of other cases that are perhaps smaller that, um, you know, we'll, we provide funding for or cases where the council is, you know, less well-resourced than the typical big few class action firms in Ontario, or even the, some of the cases that have been brought against the government, for example, with relation to the administrative segregation in prisons, which mm -hmm. is really solitary confinement, right? And, you know, yes, while those cases have had a really good track record, I think that's an example of really important public interest litigation as well. Mm. Okay, great. So, uh, Emily, let's switch back to you. Uh, what what sort of uh, expenses does Augusta Ventures fund? I mean, presumably it's things like uh, disbursements, adverse costs. Uh, do you ever cover lawyer fees, or is that is that something that you don't deal with? Um, it's something that we haven't dealt with yet, mm -hmm. although we're definitely open to doing that. So far, most of the requests for funding that we've had, um, the firms are really well acquainted with taking on the, the risk of fees. Um, so they're really coming to us for maybe some help with disbursements. Uh, and Definitely adverse cost awards are a big one. Mm -hmm. So that, that's really the, the heart of what we fund is, okay. is off, taking that risk off of class counsel and definitely the rep plaintiff. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you get separate insurance then for the adverse cost award? Do you go out and get insurance from another uh, company or how does that work? Yeah, that's a really um, insightful question. <laughs> you know how this works. Right. Uh, so <laughs> a lot of the time we've been retaining the risk ourselves on the Canadian class actions, especially. Um, but in other cases, especially in commercial cases, then typically Augusta will go out and um, obtain ATE uh, after the event insurance just to protect against any any adverse cost awards. Mm -hmm. um, and we, we could get into it, but there's a risk in other jurisdictions that funders can be exposed to costs beyond what they've been agreed to agreed to fund. Mm -hmm. So elsewhere, not so much in Canada, but elsewhere, obtaining outside insurance is, is a, a bigger deal. I, I think you're referring to England there, am I? Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm referring to England and, okay. and the Arkin, Arkin yes, tap. Yes, yes. Right, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which we won't go into right now. Uh, yeah. So, Ramissa, how does, uh, how does, I know that the uh, class proceedings fund covers uh, adverse, indemnifies for adverse costs award, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but how does it manage the risk of adverse costs award? And we just talked about the DAS action. That must have taken quite a chunk out of the, the money available to the, in the fund. So how, how does the committee manage that risk? Right. And I think that that's a really important question. You know, I think the class proceedings committee has been very good at managing the risk since the inception. And you can really see that when you take a look at the 
you know, at the Law Foundation of Ontario every year in their annual report, there's a section on the Class Proceedings Committee and the Class Proceedings Fund. And you can see that for the most part, the um, yes, while there is a risk of adverse costs, and you know it's always a concern for the committee because the class proceedings fund, after its initial grant when it was created, is self-sustaining and self-funding. So when we are paying adverse large adverse costs in a case, we you know that's money that is not available for other actions. And I think, you know, you can't control the risk of large class, large adverse costs completely, mm. but there are some things you can do to mitigate the risk. And I think the first is, you know, being very thorough and careful when you look at the cases prior to them being funded. And I think it's really important that the committee has a comprehensive idea of the sense of the case. Um, and, you know, besides that, we do quite a bit of monitoring of our cases. And, you know, because of the way things have developed, our portfolio of cases is diverse enough that, you know, we have, we don't have a huge concentration in a single practice area. And we also don't have 20 cases that are in trial at once because mm -hmm. that's, I think, where you really get the risk of a large adverse costs and cost award, sorry. And, you know, we try to settle the costs where they're, when it's possible. And in instances where there are risks of very large cost awards, we'll often retain external counsel to ensure that the class proceedings fund and the law foundation of Ontario's interests are appropriately represented. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think, I think really it comes down to carefully considering what cases are funded, which the committee always does. And also when by monitoring the cases, and I think because of when the cases are funded that we generally have a pretty steady rotation of cases that are settled or cases that are just being started. So, you know, you move through the life cycle of a class action, you know, obviously over a course of number, a number of years because of the length it takes to, for a class action to get from inception to the end. But, you know, because we have so many cases that are funded at so many different stages, there tends to be a a balance between levies and adverse costs. And mm -hmm. so I think on the whole, it balances out. Okay. So then what, what factors do you take into account when, uh, and I believe this is laid out uh, in regulations, but what factors do you take into account when considering uh, whether to take on a class action and then tell us more as well about the monitoring that you do as the case proceeds. Sure. So you're correct in that there are factors in both the legislation and the regulations that the committee members consider when determining to fund a case. Um, that includes the merits of an action and the likelihood of certification, the public interest that is triggered by the action various financial controls of plaintiff's counsel and also the status of the class proceedings fund itself so you know if there's a meritorious case but for some reason we're very low on funding the committee may decline to fund it just because they're concerned about the overall balance of the fund mm -hmm. um, and in terms of monitoring so we are very clear that we do not interfere with counsel um, we very much appreciate being informed of the status of the case and, you know, we'll have several of the law firms that we work with frequently providing us with updates on what's happening in the case. And there are several instances where counsel is required to consult with us and generally that occurs when a case is being settled and prior to the court documents being finalized, we can ensure that, you know, the settlement order and the fees order appropriately captures the 
levy, for instance, and also where there is a risk of adverse cost. So we won't interfere in a plaintiff's handling of emotion, but if the plaintiff is unsuccessful, we are liable for the adverse cost. So we try to make sure that we are able to manage the risk as much as possible. Mm-hmm. So Emily, how does how does your organization monitor the uh, the ongoing progress of a case? And uh, what are the circumstances in which you might have to withdraw funding, if ever? Can you tell us about that? Uh, really, we do a quite similar thing to the class proceedings fund. Um, we can't we can't actively interfere in any cases, so it's really a passive receipt of information. Uh, we we require monthly updates from counsel, but they're not very onerous, especially in a class action that can take some time to really move. Mm-hmm. It's it's just uh, small updates from counsel, and the circumstances in which we could could terminate funding are are extremely limited and. I think in any event, I would think they would have in the class actions context, any termination would have to be approved by the court. Mm-hmm. Uh, outside of class actions, it's a bit different. There would be, I, I think, the on the commercial side, Augusta could terminate if there's a, a huge drop in the legal merits of the case in limited circumstances, uh, or if the, the defendants are bankrupt and there's no chance of recovery. But again, the, the circumstances where where we'd be allowed to do something like that are extremely narrow just being mindful of um of how it, the it, it could seem like champerty or or maintenance mm-hmm. any kind of interference so a lot a lot like the class proceedings fund receiving information and then and then trying to have have input on any anything that would impact costs uh report the or put the funds at risk uh, one thing that I, I I would like to do. Um, and I, I don't think that it's really intermeddling, but I, I love legal drafting uh, as, as Remissa did as well. And maybe it's a, funders are a good place for people who enjoy that kind of thing. Um, so if there's any way that I can and help help on a case, I, I, lo- I would love to do that, but I know that it's not really my role, so. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. <laughs> Uh, and so then, at the end of the litigation, what proportion of any award does Augusta collect? Uh, and how do you work that out with lawyers and clients? Uh, for sure. So that gets really worked out uh, at the close of the originations phase when we would send out a term sheet. Um, and those terms, we send out pricing based on um, our an economic model that we have developed. So we ascribe percentages to different outcomes in the case um, and consider the duration of the case and um, the output of the funds. So we consider things like money multiples in, in the return and probably in class actions more important is the internal rate of return. So that takes into account the timing of the case and we'll use all of that information to come up, up with our terms. So, so far we've been um, really there's such strong pricing precedent in the class actions context that really we've been been following that rather closely. So we haven't experimented a whole lot with different pricing, um, but typically it would be anywhere between um, seven to twelve percent uh, in an exceptional case, maybe a bit higher. Um, of course, if we're funding fees, it would be higher. Um, but so far we've stuck really within the market of the seven to ten percent recovery model um, and then as well as uh, recovering any of the principal mm-hmm. loaned okay. out. Yeah, great. So Remissa, I, I know that the uh, the class proceedings fund takes a 10% levy that's that's uh, set out uh, statutorily, but uh, how, how do you work out the amount of which you take that 10%? For example, if, if it's not a completely cash settlement, if there's, I don't know, some kind of maybe a coupon settlement or something in kind, or it's it's not all distributed. How, how do you work out that 10%? Right. So, you know, the legislation is clear that the levy is 10% of what class members are entitled to. So even in a lump sum settlement, there's still some level of calculations that need to be done mm-hmm. of what the net settlement settlement proceeds are after the class council fees and administration costs have been deducted. But your question about 
the settlements that are not all cash settlements is interesting. And, you know, the it it's not always the same. So I'm a little bit wary of giving a definitive answer because mm-hmm. it really does depend on the circumstances of each settlement. But, you know, and I, I think the other thing is that we're very cognizant of our role as an organization that is trying to promote access to justice. And so, you know, we're not really interested in clawing back 10% of non-cash benefits if it's not appropriate in the circumstances. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that there's a balancing and it really, for cases that are not just cash settlements, it really depends on the circumstances of the settlement. But generally, the entitlement is the 10% of what class members are entitled to. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then, uh, as, as we all know, litigation funding raises several ethical concerns or can raise several ethical concerns. Uh, tell us more about those and then how the Class Proceedings Committee manages those concerns. So, you know, I actually don't really see a ton of ethical concerns with the funding from the Class Actions Committee or the CPF. You know, I think we're very care. You know, I think the ethical concerns come out with when there's a concern that a funder has undue influence, which is why I think you see both the CPC and CPF and the third-party commercial funders take a position of non-interference with mm-hmm. the litigation, right? Because no one wants their funder driving the litigation, but. To be honest, I, I don't think that that's happening, right? The lawyers and their clients are in the driver's seat, and we're just there to provide a little bit of support when it may of financial support when it's when it's appropriate. And so that's why our our role is we don't want to interfere, but when there's something that affects our interests, so you know, the levy calculation or any adverse cost that we are required to pay, that's when we have an interest and that's when we'll make our interests known. But besides that, you know, we are very happy to let council do their thing. Class council in Ontario, and, you know, I I know that this applies to class council across the country, but we only fund Ontario cases, Mm -hmm. which is why I'm limiting my comments to them. You know, class council, they're exceedingly careful and smart and good at their job. So I don't really think that for the most part that there's any real concern um, with respect to any of the ethical issues. Okay, great. Um, Emily, tell us, uh, are the ethical concerns different with a commercial funder or are they any more prevalent? Um, I think just a little bit more heightened just because um, we're, we're not enacted by a statute and uh, we're not as transparent so I think the same thing we have to just make sure that we're not officiously intermeddling in any cases Um, we also do conflict checks so when we have a case in we have to alert everybody to including the investors to to run conflicts Mm -hmm. another thing that we do um, I I guess it's more sort of a precautionary thing um, is that we do a lot of actual counsel diligence. So we'll look at um, uh, a law firm's track record, especially in the subject area, and we'll look at their experience with funders, we'll look at any insurance claims that have been made against them, and whether there are any disciplinary proceedings. Mm -hmm. So that's um, another thing that gives us comfort that we don't have to, we're not worried about what counsel are going to do with the case. We can happily we can happily just let them run with it and provide funding when it's needed uh, without the temptation to ever interfere. So that that's just one thing that we do at the outset to mm-hmm. keep those ethical questions at bay. Okay. And then, uh, yeah, as, as, is, um, uh, as is required now by the changes to the Class Proceedings Act, a, a court has to approve, and was previously required by the case law, a court has to approve uh, a litigation of fu- funding agreement. 
what role does the defendant play in that, if ever? Because I know they're required to be notified. Yeah, so defendants have, they seem to want to take an active role. And I, I feel like I'm going to say some unpopular things <laughs> right now. <laughs> um, my position, formerly as a class actions lawyer, and uh, maintain to this day, I really think they they should know about the funding agreement. That's fair. Beyond that, I feel like if the funder can show that they have a turn to the jurisdiction, they're going to abide by any court orders. Uh, they have the financial resources to satisfy any adverse costs awards that are really what the defendants should be most concerned about. Um, I don't think they should have any role right. <laughs> um, beyond being satisfied about that. Um, so far, defendants have sometimes uh, appeared and tried to argue on behalf of class members about terms of different funding agreements. I've seen that in the in the case law, which is, is sort of funny. Um, but and then ask for security for costs. Although it looks like it looks like the courts now they've been dealing with funders. They know if a funder doesn't satisfy its obligations that they're essentially going to be run out of town and out of business. Mm -hmm. um, so it looks like courts are requiring less and less funders post that security for costs. And um, with, the, with the new legislation, it just seems to be codifying what the practice always was. And um, So in short, uh, unpopular, I, I don't think defendants should have much of a role okay. in funding. Great. Uh, and Ramissa, uh, with, uh, with the Class Proceedings Committee, I know that uh, there's always an option for plaintiffs to say that they, they're happy for defendants to make representations before the committee. Um, do plaintiffs ever agree to that, or how does that work? Plaintiffs do agree to that. I would say probably about 50% of the time, okay. which, if I'm being completely frank, surprised me, <laughs> because it was something I never thought to agree to when I was in private practice, but, you know, I think the defendants don't always take up the option to submit anything to the committee, but I will say when they do, both assess it, when I'm assessing the cases and I, you know, I can't speak for the committee members, but when they're looking at the cases, I think it's quite helpful mm. to get a sense, even if it's not, you know, a key issue in the case, but sometimes, you know, there will be an issue of, oh, by the way, there's this stay motion that was brought in another province, or the defendants will bring our attention to something else. And I think that that's a really interesting angle. You know, I think it's really interesting. When I was in practice, I don't think I ever consented to allowing defendant submissions and I would say that they're probably plaintiffs generally consent about 50% of the time and the defendants don't always take up the offer to submit anything to the committee members because they have to sign an undertaking and they are aware that whatever they send us is provided to the plaintiff so the plaintiff has a chance to respond, but I find it both very interesting and very helpful because often defendants will draw attention to something that may perhaps not have been crystal clear or may not have been evident to me when reviewing the plaintiff's materials. So I always really appreciate when the defendants take up that opportunity and I think it gives me and the committee a really well-rounded view of the case. Okay. Uh, and then uh, I'll stick with you, Remissa, for this one. The the changes uh, that were recently made to the Class Proceedings Act, uh, what what effect do you think they're going to have, including the, the provision that defendants are allowed to uh, re uh, recover their costs directly from the, the litigation funder? What are your thoughts on those? So I will note two things. One is I believe that the class proceedings fund is exempt from the provisions ah, okay. relating to third-party funding in Bill 161. But that said, our legislation has allowed for a defendant to make an application to have its costs paid. And in my experience, that still generally runs through the plaintiff. 
I don't have defense counsel reaching out to me, seeking to have their costs paid. Generally, they are participating in the process, but it's always through plaintiff's counsel as an intermediary. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm not sure how that'll play out with um, commercial funders, but that's been our experience. With respect to the rest of Bill 161, you know, I don't think it's controversial to say that it's more difficult to get a case certified under the new provisions of the certification test. And, you know, the committee will take that into account and has taken that into account just like they take into account new legislation in other areas, for example, with respect to liability of the Ontario government. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the committee is nimble and is always looking at the up-to-date law in making any funding determination. And, you know, I think that that'll just continue to occur with the amendment to the Class Proceedings Act. Okay. Uh, Emily, what are your thoughts on the on the recent changes? Yeah, so again, um, I, I agree with Ramissa. I typically do agree with Ramissa on lots of things, so <laughs> not unusual. Um, but yeah, I think uh, with um, with recovering costs directly from the funder, that um, doesn't seem to be a big issue. Um, personally, I, I kind of... I, I really don't mind it because it just cuts out cuts out added email and mm-hmm. an added layer and just getting things done. Um, so I don't I don't really see anything wrong with that. Uh, and then just on in terms of the case changes generally, um, I do think that they're unfortunate um, all around, and it's going to make certifying cases certain types of cases more difficult. So. I think really what it'll do, it'll make, um, it'll just bring more selectivity. So mm-hmm. funders will just have to be more careful. Um, the uncertainty of the change is is not the most welcome thing. Like there's a lot of jurisprudence out there that up until that point, and even though um, Augusta's only been active in Canada for about a year and a half now, but in in really launching the business, we were relying a lot on that existing legislation mm. and all the jurisprudence so it's just a, a layer of uncertainty that's not ideal and sure it's not really ideal for for consumers either or prospective class members mm-hmm. um but yeah so that's really how it impacts us do you think uh, you'll see fewer cases coming across your desk because people will be going you know class council will be going to uh, no cost jurisdictions or jurisdictions where it's easier to certify um, yeah, I think uh, that's probably a fair statement. Um, I've seen, I'm sure uh, listeners as well as yourself have seen other cl- class actions are getting filed in BC over mm-hmm. Ontario when possible, if there's a connection there. So I do, I do see that happening. Um, and I think, I think there'll always be a role for funders um, just because litigation doesn't seem to be getting any cheaper. Mm-hmm. So I think even if it's not necessarily funding adverse costs, there might be another need that we can meet. Um, and it also, you know, it kind of, with making class actions harder to bring in Ontario, there might be other mechanisms of collective redress that um, that law firms might come up with or that um, prospective plaintiffs might come up with and uh, we'd be able to provide the funds to sort of incubate that mechanism. Mm-hmm. So there might be opportunity there too, just just thinking outside of the traditional class actions context. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Uh, Ramissa, do you, do you think you'll see fewer applications to the Class Proceedings Committee uh, as a result of the changes? You know, honestly, I don't know. I think that there are some cases that can only be brought in Ontario, and so we'll still continue to see those cases. Mm-hmm. And, you know, ultimately, I suspect that even if there are fewer cases brought in Ontario, I don't know if the litigation funders will see fewer cases. Okay. I think perhaps the types of cases we see may be different. They may be the cases that don't have a national class 
case mm-hmm. or they may be the cases that for some reason would not do as well in another jurisdiction or that may be riskier. And so those are the cases where council is seeking funding as a backstop. But, you know, I think it's too early to say. Mm-hmm. I think that the growth of class actions in other jurisdictions is a good thing for class actions generally. And I think, you know, class actions in no cost regimes is a benefit for class members. And so I think that's all a good thing. And I think it's a little bit too early to say what is going to happen in Ontario. But I hope that, you know, litigation funders can continue to play a role because they do think that we provide plaintiffs and class and class members with a valuable service. And, you know, as far as I'm concerned, I'd like that to continue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure we all would. So uh, I'm going to finish then uh, with one more question. I'll put this to you, Emily, because um, uh, I I think through Augusta Ventures, which has offices in England and other jurisdictions, you might have uh, you you might have uh, a good perspective on this. So how does the Canadian litigation funding market compare to uh, the markets in Australia and England? And I am choosing those because they're the litigation funding markets there seem quite mature, but I, I just want mm-hmm. to get your perspective on that. Yeah, so they are, and that's that's the big difference is that um, funding is relatively new to Canada compared to the other jurisdictions where it's far far more established. Um, and I think my answer is, so was sort of summarized by the recent podcast with uh, Professor Lake, mm-hmm. but in um, in Australia, a funder started up they. Contingency fees weren't allowed, so really funders would step in and fund the advance of litigation, and then in exchange take a return at the end. Um, here in here in Canada, we've always had the class proceedings fund since the inception of litigation, which has really sort of set uh, a precedent for for a funder return. So really, any third party funders that have come into Canada have stuck closer close to that model um in australia there really wasn't that benchmark and Mm. so uh funders the returns kept getting higher and um it caught the attention of regulators so now there's a um a a pub i I guess a parliamentary inquiry there Mm. uh so it's a very mature market canada is new we have we do have the benefit of um some guidance on on what the pricing should look like to hopefully uh, avoid any any similar backlash here. But in England, uh, litigation funding, it's, it's so well established, actually, lawyers are required, I think, by legislation to inform their clients about the potential for litigation funding, mm-hmm. uh, which is very different from here. Um, perhaps we'll move to that model because um, it might be attractive to some clients, especially especially corporate clients who uh, they would rather keep the money in their business, small business owners. They might not have any money to spend on litigation if it's protecting intellectual property or something like that. Um, They'd prefer that a funder fund the litigation. They can keep their money and grow their business. It seems like um, the exposure uh, in England, at least, to adverse costs is phenomenal compared to Canada so or at least to Ontario so you know we think costs are high here but the costs in England you know they they run to sometimes hundreds of millions of pounds Mm -hmm. so do you think that explains as well the maturity of the litigation funding market in England as compared to Canada or do you think Canada is going to get there hopefully Um, not with the cost awards yeah I really I would really hope that the costs of litigation don't get that astronomically Mm -hmm. high anyway Um, uh, and yeah whenever when I see funding requests from um, claimants in, in England, I'm, I'm always just so astounded at, mm-hmm. at how much money is required to advance the litigation there. So I'm sure, I'm sure that that does play into it because I just, I, I can't imagine not having a party to at least share that risk with. Mm-hmm. It, it's a lot, it would be a lot to take on. Great. So, uh, Ramissa, do you have anything else to add? We've heard a lot from Emily. Do you have anything else to add before we sign off? No, I think that this has been a really interesting discussion and 
Um, thank you for the opportunity. I know funding is not always the sexiest of class action topics, but, and I'm obviously biased, but I think it's really important. And so I'm really happy to have had the opportunity to chat about it for a bit. Great. Uh, and Emily, anything else before we sign off? Um, no, I don't think so. I agree. Like, um, just one thing that I, I think Ramissa touched on earlier, uh, I never, I, I didn't seize the opportunity to add, but it's a really interesting space for people who, who, who really like this area of law, um, but may not be that interested in, in actually litigating it. Mm -hmm. So you get to do all of the analysis and you get to act as an advisor, which is really um, something that I like doing at Siskins uh, was a lot of the writing. Um, so it's it's a an interesting area for people who might not want to appear in court, but really love love the subject matter. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm I'm happy I found I found this area. It's it's interesting to me, even though as Ramissa says, it might not be as interesting to everybody. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, I, I think funding is is key to class action, so I don't know why it wouldn't be interesting to everybody, but uh, I guess the, there are people out there. So, um, well, thank you very much. You provided some really, really good insights into this area, and uh, thank you very much for your time, and uh, have a great day. Thank yeah, you. thank you. Take care. Bye. Thanks for having us. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Certified, Canada's class actions podcast. Hosted and produced by Suzanne Kyoto. Graphic design is by Suzanne Kyoto and Rob Haskins. And the music is by Scott Holmes at freemusicarchive.org. Website and distribution are courtesy of Simplecast. Be sure to tune in for next week's episode. You can also visit the show's website, certified.simplecast.com, where you can subscribe in iTunes, Google Podcast, and Spotify, or by RSS. You can also find announcements about the show on my Twitter account, Kyoto Accord. Till next time, stay safe and stay classy. <laughs>